This may be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. That's usually how we preface a question that we're not sure how people will receive and respond to. Now, what if the disciple in our text this morning hadn't made this request of Jesus because he thought it was silly? We would never have had what we now call the disciples' prayer. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11, and I'll read verses 1 through 11, or you may follow as the verses are projected on the screen behind me. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. In our text this morning, we see that a discipline is modeled for us to emulate. Now, we have heard it said, as the slide will show you, we have heard it said, monkey see, monkey do, which means that example set is example followed. I believe that if it, is, if it is true of shaving, it is also true of prayer. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, let your mind wander with me for a moment. What place was that? What place was that? Was he, was he kneeling at his bedside? Was he reclining? in his favorite sofa? Was he walking the Pensy Trail and praying outdoors? We're told only that he was praying in a certain place. He was talking to God. Now, what was he praying about? What might he have been talking to God about? 
Maybe he was praying for wisdom or for courage to handle personal issues. Maybe he was praying for the government that they would rule justly and fairly. Maybe he was praying for the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Maybe he was praying for new believers that their faith in Jesus Christ would not be railroaded by the devil's schemes. Maybe he was praying for Christians because they had allowed the busyness of life and all of the distractions of life to take them away from their first love, their love for the Lord. Now the list of possible things that he was praying about was endless. I want to ask you this morning, what's been on your prayer list lately? What do you need to add to the list that you have? We're told that one of the disciples of Jesus saw him praying. I asked myself, was it Jesus' intention that this disciple see him pray? I don't think so, because Jesus had already taught us, he had already taught his disciples that, that when you pray, you know, go into your secret place and close the door behind you so that your prayer would be only between you and your father. And when he saw you praying in secret, he would reward you openly. So I don't believe that Jesus was intentionally praying to be seen. But I believe that his light, by his lifestyle of prayer, it was inevitable that somebody would have seen him sometime or later praying. Because he was modeling for his disciples a behavior that he wanted them to emulate. And so this behavior triggered a request from the disciple who saw him. And so our next point is that a request ends up becoming a lesson. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now we're going to see that this exchange between Jesus and this unnamed disciple takes Christian discipleship beyond just concern for our neighbor, as we learned in the story of the Good Samaritan. It takes us beyond simply sitting at Jesus' feet, as we saw Mary doing in last week's lesson. It shows that the central focus of your discipleship must be your complete dependence upon God, evidenced by a lifestyle of prayer. Now let's look first at what this disciple's request was not before we look at what it was. Now did you notice that the request was not, Lord, teach me to pray? His request was, Lord, teach us to pray. Now why is that important? I think for two reasons, maybe three. First of all, prayer is disciplined activity. Disciplined activity. You realize that prayer is not instinctive behavior? We don't pray instinctively, do we? We do not pray by instinct. We must be taught to pray. It is not something that we instinctively do. Prayer is a discipline which must be taught first by example and then by precept. So the disciple saw Jesus praying. He saw the example. And then he asked to be taught to pray. 
Christians need to be taught to pray because we are not inclined to pray. So we need to be taught to pray. We are more inclined to do our own thing than to pray. That is a natural um, human behavior, that we do our own thing rather than praying. That's why we need to be taught. We are more inclined to complain than to pray. We complain to anybody who would listen, don't we? We are more inclined to stress over the situations that we're going through rather than to pray. We are more inclined to cry to friends than we are to pray. We are more inclined even to be angry at God for allowing the things that he allows in our world and in our lives than we are to pray. So prayer is a discipline that must be taught and then caught. So Jesus set the example for us. He set the example for us, intending for us to emulate it. And then he also taught us that a disciple would become like his teacher. You follow? A disciple, the one who is being trained in prayer by the example that was set, would become like his teacher. To the point where we are emulating the example. But we also have examples from scripture of ordinary men and women praying. Praying prayers, for example, like, God, make the sun stand still. We have examples of people praying, God, open my womb and let me conceive a child, because up to now I haven't been able to. Or, God, shut these lions' mouths so that they won't be able to hurt me. Or, God, let it not rain on the earth for three and a half years. And it didn't rain. And then after that, God, you can let it rain now. And it did rain. We have people praying, God, send revival in our day and in our time. We have people praying, God, deliver us from armies that are way too vast for our little armies to conquer. And God answered these prayers. These are examples to teach us to pray. Now, one very um, significant example I want to highlight for you this morning is that of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king of the tiny nation of Judah. And the powerful Babylonian army that decimates them are uh, gathered around them, uh, just ready to invade this tiny nation. And in fact, the, the king, King Sennacherib, is taunting Hezekiah and mocking Hezekiah's God and taunting Hezekiah for putting his faith in God. Because he's saying, the God that you guys are serving or the God you think will deliver you, he can't deliver you out of my hands. And that is going on repeatedly, repeatedly. In fact, in fact Sennacherib sends a letter to Hezekiah with all of these taunts and these mockings. And this is what Hezekiah does. It is here behind me in the screen. So Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. 
You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So, and this is the conclusion now. So now, Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. I love that prayer. There's nothing in there personal. There's no personal request in there, although there's nothing wrong with us bringing our personal requests before the Lord. This is a prayer for the glory of God to be manifested in the tiny nation of Judah, so that all of the nations of the world may know that God, and God alone is God. I love that prayer. My question coming out of that scripture is this, what letters have you received lately that you need to lay before God? Maybe you received a letter this week from the doctor of some impossible situation. Maybe you received a letter concerning your children and the situation they are in. Maybe you received a letter, a proverbial one, from some place. What letters do you need to lay before your father this morning and know that he actually cares about what you're experiencing? So prayer is, first of all, disciplined activity. But secondly, prayer is a communal activity. Again, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as a community. Make us a praying community like the one that John the Baptist has already established. Because he says, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, his community. Or make us a praying community like the one that Jim Simbola has established at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. We often refer to his prayer meetings that are powerful and large. Or make us a praying community like the one we heard about that sparked a revival at Asbury. Make us a community of prayers. Now, praying in community was not, un was not unusual in that culture, unlike in our culture, because, you see, we tend to be more individualistic, we tend to rely more on the strength of the individual, and so there is not usually the need for community. But the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer. We erroneously call it the Lord's Prayer. It is just that the Lord taught his disciples to pray. So it should be, it is more correct to call it the disciples' prayer, the prayer that disciples pray as a community. This prayer was given to exemplify how we should pray as a community of believers who are dependent, completely dependent upon God. Now Jesus begins his answer to the disciple by saying, saying to him, when you pray, when you pray. Now the personal pronoun that Jesus used here for you is in the plural, which means that he was saying, when you all pray, or as the Southerners say, when y'all pray. <laughs> I love, loved living in Kentucky, and uh, I love their Southern drawl. 
uh, uh, and sometimes as you're driving um, out of the state of Kentucky and maybe going into a bordering state, it says, you see this big, huge sign that says, y'all come back here. Uh, I just love that. But Jesus is saying, when you all pray, not just when you personally pray, that is assumed, but when you all pray, when you all pray as a community, when you all pray in your church, when you all pray in your small groups, when you all pray in your prayer meetings, pray using this simple outline that I'm giving to you. This outline has one address, it has two statements, and it has three requests. So as you come before God, use this address. Our Father. Now, in our text, it just says Father. If you read Matthew, it says Our Father. So realize that by saying Our Father, that you are part of a community, part of a family. You are affirming when you pray that, that we are all at Brown's Chapel. We have family. The person who is sitting next to you is your sister because she shares the same father. The person behind you is your brother because he shares the same father as well. Those who are different in appearance or socioeconomic status, they are your brother and sister because they share your same father as well. He is our father which art in heaven. I'm told that a little boy in his Sunday school class asked the question, who can tell me what God does for a living? <laughs> and so a little girl answered, God does not work. Sure he does, the boy says. Well, how do you know that he works? Well, he's an artist, the boy says. And how do you know that he's an artist, the girl says. Well, have you never heard the prayer, our father who does art in heaven? Yes, he does art, but he, he is in heaven. So when we pray, our Father, we are communicating, we're communicating our respect for God, and we're also communicating our intimacy with God. But here's what we must be very careful about. Our intimacy with God must never di diminish our respect for God. We sang so much this morning about his holiness fact that he's exalted. So we have the opportunity to do, to do both, to respect his exaltedness, his authority, his holiness, but also to draw near to him in intimacy. We must never forget that while God is our father, he's not our buddy. He's not our buddy. And so that is why we hallow his name. We say hallowed or exalted, or holy, is your name. We approach God recognizing that he is holy, that there is none like him, there is no one who has the authority that he has, the power that he has. We hallow his name, never reducing it to merely a curse word. We ask for God's rule in our hearts and in our lives, in our children's lives in our neighbor's lives, in our world, and in our lifetime. We pray together for the visible manifestation of his presence in our world. I'm told that a farmer went to see his banker, and as he 
walked into the room, he announced to him that he had good news and he had bad news. Don't you like it when somebody tells you, I have good news and I have bad news? All right, so the banker says, well, give me the, give, give me the bad news first. The farmer responds, well, I can't make my mortgage payments, and that crop loan that I've taken out for the last 10 years, I can't pay that off either. Not only that, I won't be able to pay you the couple hundred thousand dollars that I still have outstanding on my tractors and other equipment. So I'm going to have to give up the farm and turn it all over to you for whatever you can salvage out of it. After a long silence, the banker asks, well, what's the good news? The good news is I'm going to keep on banking with you. <laughs> Let me follow that up by saying we are not a perfect community by any means. Our church is not perfect. But of this one thing, I am very sure we need to keep banking together as a community of prayers. Thirdly, prayer communicates our God dependency. Now notice that this prayer is not our individual checklist of what we want God to do. That has its place. But this prayer expresses our complete dependence upon God. We express our awareness of God's holiness. We've talked a little bit about that already. We ask for God's rule to be established on earth. We express our need for forgiveness from God and forgiveness from one another because God knows we often offend him and we often offend one another. So forgiveness needs to be received from God and extended to one another. We ask God for physical and spiritual protection over our lives, over our families, over our church. We ask God to soften our hearts so that we might be susceptible and submissive to his will. We pray for God's kingdom to come and we long for the day when God will redeem all things. That's what the prayer does. Here's our third and final point this morning. The importance of prayer is illustrated with a parable. And he said to them, Jesus does, which of you has a friend, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now what this illustration does, the one that Jesus provides, is to teach us about the boldness of prayer. So it is midnight, and your door has been bolted shut, and you and your family are asleep in bed. The lights are turned off. And your friend comes banging on your door, waking you up at midnight, asking for bread to feed his guests. The question is, do you get out of bed and risk waking up your family? Because, of course, those rooms were very small. Everybody was sleeping together. You got up, more than likely you would wake up your entire family. And would you go out to give him the food that he needs? That's the question. Now Jesus says in the story, in the illustration, that this friend would not get up and give his friend bread because he was his friend. So it's not friendship that is at play here. But he was going to get up and give him what he needed because of his impudence. That's an old English word that means because of his rudeness. 
because of his audacity to disturb him at midnight when he and his family are already asleep in bed. So the question is, is Jesus saying in this passage that you and I must have the kind of rudeness and audacity to ask God for whatever we need, even if it is in the middle of the night? Yes, that is what Jesus is saying. I understand that the Greek word, an idea, it sounds like the English, word, English words, an idea, but it's a Greek word, an idea, one word. This word communicates shamelessness. It communicates having the gall and the temerity to disturb somebody at an ungodly hour. And so you have the gall and the temerity to disturb God at the most inconvenient time, except that with God, there is no inconvenient time. That is the point. So nothing will stop God from hearing such a request, a request that has the gall and the temerity to disturb him at any ungodly hour that you can think of. Now, it is true that God reserves the right because he's sovereign. God reserves the right uh, to determine how he will answer our prayers. So it doesn't necessarily mean that because you go to God, you automatically get everything that you need because God still has the right to determine how he will answer prayer. But the point is that the door is always open to come to God with any request. And so Jesus closes with an acronym for audacious prayer, which is this, the acronym A-S-K, ask, knock, seek. All of them are action words that talk about what you do when you come to God. You come to him asking for stuff. You come to him seeking him first and the stuff that he gives. Knocking on his door, asking him to do the things that you have on your heart. And unlike this neighbor who is disturbed in the night and who perhaps responds only grudgingly, God will never not respond to us. Double negative. God will never not respond. Maybe not in the way that we like or in the time that we like. But all we need to do is to ask, seek, and knock and find that God is faithful to answer. And then finally, as we close, to drive home this point, Jesus compares praying to our Heavenly Father to a son who asked his parent for a fish to eat. And I'm sure as I look across this congregation and I take a poll this morning, I am sure that there's no parent here if their son asked him for fish will give them a poisonous snake. Would you? Would you give that to Jeremiah? <laughs> if he came asking you for fish, certainly not. And if they asked you for an egg, you certainly won't give them a tarantula either, would you? You won't. Because the point Jesus is making here is that we who are parents, we are earthly parents, and although we are evil, we know how to give good things to our children when they ask us for stuff. And sometimes we give them even more than they actually ask us for because there is within us a softness for our children. Isn't there? Sometimes we err too much. Sometimes we give, but it's because of the generosity and the softness of our hearts when our children come to us 
to ask for stuff, we give it to them. And then Jesus closes with this punchline. That if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Which brings us to this, our bottom line. That the greatest prayer that we can pray as a church or a community is for the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest prayer that we can pray. Because to have the Holy Spirit is to have the other things that we are asking God for as well. Let me wrap this up by challenging you in, in four different ways. I want to challenge you as you pray to be respectful. Be respectful. Acknowledge God for who he is. That's how you start anyway. You, you come to God with a spirit of humility. You acknowledge that he is God and that you are not. We are not little gods who can determine how to live our own lives. We need all of us to submit our lives to the authority of God himself. I may be speaking to somebody here this morning or even somebody online who has never submitted their lives to the authority of God. This is your opportunity to do that. To acknowledge that God is God and I am not. And I need God's rule in my life. As we bow our heads this morning, I want to just ask you boldly, is there anybody here this morning who has never given their lives to God? And you want to do that this morning. May I see your hand? There's anybody listening or watching virtually. You need to open up your life to God for the first time and say, God, I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need you to be my father. Let us pray together as you pray for yourself as well. Father, if there's one person this morning, maybe two, maybe three, maybe five, that you were speaking to this morning about your need to establish your authority in their lives, I ask this morning that in the privacy of their heart, that they would say, yes, Lord, come in, forgive my sins, become my father, make me your child. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Secondly, I want to challenge you this morning to be intimate. Don't keep anything back from God. Don't leave any area of your life off limits to God. Give him access to every area of your lives, even the things that you are inclined to hide. Because you see, God wants, God wants you to know him, and he wants you to know that he knows you completely. Be intimate. Tell God how much you love him. That's not sometimes a word that we like to use so much in our prayers to God, but, but there's nothing wrong with telling God how much you love him. And then reveling in his love for you. Be intimate. Thirdly, be audacious. Don't be afraid to ask God for anything. Nothing is too big for you to ask God for. Now, I'm not saying that this is a blanket statement for receiving from God anything that you want. But I'm saying God wants us to pray audacious prayers too. Sometimes you and I limit God in terms of what we think he can do. But be audacious in your asking. And then finally, be surrendered. Understand that God's will 
takes paramountcy in your life, takes precedence over everything else. Sub submit to what God's will is and allow God to carry out his will in your lives. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for giving good gifts to us. Thank you for giving the Holy Spirit to us. God, we commit ourselves to you this morning. We commit ourselves to your Lordship over our lives. We commit ourselves to being a family, the family of God, brothers and sisters together. We commit ourselves, Lord, to seeking your forgiveness and extending your forgiveness to others when we offend. We commit ourselves, Lord God, to living out our lives the way that you want us to. Thank you for providing for us because you're a generous father. And God, we ask this morning that your blessings would be upon us as we leave to live out the principles that you've expounded to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.